When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma trip to Texas. So go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes the Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day in Cozumel or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. The Bowery Boys episode 189, Taxi, a history of the New York taxi cab. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we're taking a look at one of the great icons of the city, the New York City Taxi Cab, with a history of the entire taxi cab industry, a broad look at how people paid to get around for the past 200 or so years. It's a feature of city life that is so utilized and ubiquitous that it's hard to imagine New York without cabs racing up and down the streets, which isn't to say that they don't whiz up and down streets in other cities. Of course, taxis are a feature of, of every major city around the world. But yellow taxis are really an iconic and instantly recognizable symbol of New York City. It's an identifying marker of New York. And the New York cab driver themselves used to embody a certain personality type that people could identify from television and films. I mean, look at anything from On the Town, the musical, to Mm. taxi driver's Travis Bickle. I think I'd rather have the taxi driver in On the Town (laughs) because she can cook too. Well, we'll discuss maybe some of the changes uh, that occurred between those two different types. And we'll also answer some questions like, why are the taxis yellow these days? How does the system work to get to be a taxi driver? How are taxis today regulated? And speaking of which, of course, how does today's fight over apps like Uber actually resurface tensions that the city's taxi industry has been addressing or ignoring for most of a century? And at the very end of the show, I'll have some very startling facts about the current fleet of taxi cabs that you can charm your way through your next cocktail party or trivia match with. Good, because I was running out of material. (laughs) Well, listener, climb in as we cruise through the history of the New York City taxi. Well, Tom, that was the romantic theme to the Martin Scorsese 1976 film Taxi Driver that was, of course, composed by Bernard Herrmann. 
So, Tom, how are you going to situate this particular episode? Well, first, let's just pull back and see what we're even talking about here, because this subject is big. Mm -hmm. Today, there are about 13,500 taxi medallions, or licensed taxi cabs in New York City. And these are driven by more than 50,000 men and women who are licensed to drive cabs in New York. Each year, they whisk around about 240 million passengers. That is a quarter of a billion passengers <laughs> who are taken to and fro in the back seats of a New York City taxi every year. Millions of stories of New Yorkers carrying on in the back of those cabs. Indeed. <laughs> So that's where we are today, but let's drop way back to the beginning. And it's interesting, Greg, because a few years ago, during the summer, we did a summer transportation series, which I'm sure you remember. Mm -hmm. We addressed the topic of how New Yorkers got around by streetcar and trolley, by elevated train, by ferries, and then, of course, by the subway. But for some reason, we didn't really address the taxi. What's yeah, up with that? Yeah, we didn't address the individual rides, I guess. We were looking more towards the public transit. But this is more private transit. Well, kind of. I mean, it, in serving 240 million people, it really is kind of a public well, sure. utility. One of the biggest. So if we fall back to the mid-19th century, we have New York City as it's going through a boom time. People are moving uptown to escape disease and overcrowding that's happening lower downtown. And because there's new transportation options to allow them to live farther on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, or even up in Westchester County and get down to jobs in Lower Manhattan. But if you lived up in those more northern places, mm -hmm. obviously those public transportation options weren't quite developed yet, right? Well, in the second half of the 19th century, there were railroads. So if you lived farther uptown, you could take a train down to the train station, for example, Grand Central Terminal. Mm -hmm. on 42nd Street, and from there you could catch some kind of a horse-drawn conveyance, right? right. A, a horse car or an omnibus that would be pulled down the street. But they were also very crowded and unpredictable. You didn't necessarily know when they were going to show up, and they were rather slow. A lot of riders complained that hopping on one of these horse-drawn omnibuses didn't go much faster than a pedestrian could move at the same time. Because there's already many different kinds of horse-drawn conveyances at this time. There's wagons, individually owned carriages. The omnibus was sometimes even dangerous to board. You would have to catch them in the middle the street, they wouldn't pull oh, over right. to the side, to the corner, so you would have to kind of race across just to get them. And there, of course, were other things in the street that you had to battle to get there. And the experience didn't smell good either. You were dodging all kinds of things, um, mm -hmm. not just other carriages. Those carriages were being pulled, of course, by horses. So it was no picnic to cross the street. No, they smelled like stables. And if these things weren't going very fast in the first place, which, which the same could be said for, I don't know, the M15 going up mm -hmm. First Avenue today, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily convenient, not to mention it wasn't really going to the place that you wanted to go. If you were coming into a train station and you wanted to get to your hotel, you were visiting town, maybe you didn't know which omnibus to take. It was very complicated. You get the picture. Yes. I mean, we all take taxis. <laughs> we know why we take taxis, because they're convenient. They're direct. And the wealthiest New Yorkers obviously understood the benefits of having private transportation because if they could afford it, they had private carriages and their own drivers. But that was out of reach for most middle-class New Yorkers or even upper-middle-class New Yorkers because you didn't just need a carriage, you didn't just need horses, but you also had to have a driver and you needed to have a stable right. to and, keep those And horses. that's really the key part because that's a 
piece of architecture, you know. Right. So you not only have to have a home, but you need to have a separate building, a garage, but of course, much more elaborate because you're keeping a living animal in it. And some people did share horses and carriages mm-hmm. and drivers and stables. But still, that was something that was very expensive to do. So into this whole fray in the mid-19th century enters the hacks. The hack has a negative connotation today, but that was what you used to get around the city if you wanted to get around to somewhere directly. Yes, these were private carriages that you could hire. Uh, They were larger. They, They could seat four people. They had four wheels, usually pulled by two different horses. It was a whole industry. By the Civil War, there were hundreds of hacks roaming the streets. You could hail them on the street. You know, you might wait in a hack line outside of a major hotel. And this was a big business. But the pricing on them was somewhat unpredictable. Well, it wasn't a regulated industry, obviously. So you would hail one of these hacks. You would get inside of it. It wouldn't necessarily be guaranteed to be a comfortable ride. And it wouldn't guarantee to be a cheap one. No, because they could charge really whatever they wanted. And it was often too big of a carriage for your needs. It was like taking a limo today across town. You don't <laughs> need that huge, that huge carriage. So the solution seemed to be something that was all the rage in London at the time. These were called handsome cabs. Handsome. H-A-N-S-O-M. Not not very, very attractive cabs. Well, I think that if you look at illustrations, they are rather handsome. They're very sleek. They're tall, dark, and handsome. They are are very much (laughs) tall, dark, and handsome. These carriages were called hansoms because they were developed and patented in York, England in the 1830s by a Joseph Hansom. Oh, so there's actually a man named Hansom. Interesting. No doubt tall, dark, and handsome himself. <laughs> These were lighter, more agile, horse-drawn carriages. They only had two wheels, and they really only sat two people comfortably. And the interesting thing about them, I think, is that the driver was perched up above and behind them. So when you see them, it's like the driver standing, looking down through a hatched opening into the carriage. Pretty little carriages. I would almost say that in the way that the modern New York taxi cab is an identity for New York City, that the hansom is actually an identifier of 19th century London, right? And London had them decades before they would come to New York. In fact, in the time that we're talking about right now, in the 1850s and early 1860s, they weren't in New York. And they had been popular in London and Dublin and Paris, Berlin for decades since the 1830s. So New Yorkers are coming back right after going abroad and seen this ridiculous situation that they have with these hacks, (laughs) literally these hack jobs all over town, and they're wondering why they have to get into these clunky, four-wheel, expensive and unpredictable, unregulated carriages when they should be able to just have the same kind of lighter, handsome cabs that they had in Europe, which were also, by the way, cheaper because... You only had to have one horse. Oh, because they were just they were just sort of designed in such a way that it could be more easily pulled by a horse. Well, they were lighter. They only mm-hmm. would seat two or possibly three. But, you know, one horse obviously took up less space at night, ate less. It was just easier to maintain. So what was the holdback here? Why, was, why weren't they in New York yet? Well, why isn't anything in any city? It's because of money. Obviously, it would have been very easy to bring them over. But there were vested interests in these other hacks that were roaming around, even Even with the railways and the omnibuses and the horse carriages, people thought that by introducing this new lower cost way of getting around, that their own business would diminish significantly. 
But by the 1860s, it just became sort of embarrassing that these were not an option. I have with me here, Greg, Mm -hmm. a letter to the editor of the New York Times on March 16th, 1862, by a Mr. C.A. Bristed. Okay. Bristed. Mr. Bristed. Mr. Mr. Bristed was bristling at the fact that there were no hansom cabs in New York City. He had just come back from London. I'm going to skip down to the fourth paragraph where he writes, True, we have an innumerable quantity of omnibuses and a great many horse railroads, but these do not supply the purposes for which cabs are wanted. A man who wishes to keep his clothes clean in muddy weather or one who has parcels to carry must be set down at the exact point of his destination. (laughs) Two blocks out of his way are as bad as a mile. The omnibus is of no use to the stranger who does not know his way, to the native who returns from a journey with baggage, to the man who has several successive stoppages to make, to the cripple, temporary or permanent, and the invalid, and without particularizing all the cases which might be enumerated... Which is a great phrase. It is of no use when you are in a hurry. For the omnibus, under the most favorable circumstances, does not beat a good pedestrian much. And on some routes, the pedestrian generally boasts the omnibus. Most of these observations are equally applicable to the railways, and moreover, the manner in which passengers are crowded into the cars is utterly disgusting and a disgrace to civilization. I mean, if if that doesn't sell it to New Yorkers, then I don't know what does. It's a very handsome description. Yes, by Mr. Bristed, and he goes on for two more pages. It's a a great read. Look that up on the Times Archive if you'd like. (laughs) So finally, the city gives in, and in 1869, the Handsome Cab Company is organized in New York. They bring over cabs from Europe, and fares are set accordingly. For a ride up to one mile, it's 30 cents for one passenger or 40 cents for two passengers. And for up to one hour, it's 70 cents. Again, remember, even going small distances could take a long time. Yeah, of course. But 70 cents in those days seems quite a lot. This is still a upper middle class, upper class kind of conveyance here, right? Yes, but don't forget that by the 1870s and 1880s, and as we get into the gay 90s, New York is becoming wealthier. There is a more money, sure. Bigger upper middle class. There are restaurants now flourishing, theater scenes, and people would rather hail a romantic, handsome cab than get on an omnibus when they're enjoying a night out on the town. Yeah, if you're in your nice evening clothes and you don't have your own transportation option that you own, then it's the only option, really. So these handsome cabs became a very popular way to get around, and they would they would line up in very prominent spots outside train stations, major hotels and squares and restaurants. Their drivers actually competing with each other. And into the, the gay 90s, they were very popular uh, because they could whisk the rides from restaurant to night spot up and down Fifth Avenue through Central Park and offer a little bit of privacy below because you could close the hatch. And then imagine you were looking at the city in front of you. The driver was up and behind you and you could enjoy a little dalliance with your sweethearts as the city rolled past you. It sounds very romantic. So as the birth of the modern taxicab industry, we've begun with hacks, Mm -hmm. and we've progressed, evolved in most ways, with hansoms. 
Right. And hansoms would be also called cabs. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get our terminology right. straight here. Well, the word cab is now entering into the parlance. Right. And cab is short for cabriolet, mm-hmm. which, you know, if, <laughs> if you recall the old VW convertibles that were called cabriolet that I wanted in high school, maybe you did too. <laughs> A cabriolet is a smaller two-person carriage with a folding roof. Handsome cabs were not exactly the same because they didn't necessarily have the folding roof, but this is really too detailed. Mm -hmm. Handsome cabs would be called either cabs or handsomes. They would not be called taxis. Right. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. And then the people who drove the hacks would be also called hacks. And people who drove anything at night were referred to as nighthawks, night owls or even just owls and these people had a slightly sketchy reputation Mm -hmm. the drivers themselves were seen as somewhat opportunistic taking advantage of people who were out overcharging prowling the streets looking for suckers and cheating on fares and such the issue of these unregulated nightcaps was an issue that people wanted to solve. But the biggest issue with transportation that people had by the 1890s was, of course, all of these animals on the street. Right. Mostly horses. Horses, of course. Yeah, they didn't have any pigs pulling hansoms, although that would have been charming, I'm <laughs> sure. But you, they wanted to get the horses off the street. They wanted to just clean it up because it's now a world-class city of the Gilded Age, right? Luckily, this is the era starting in the 1880s, really, but getting to New York around the turn of the century, the era of the horseless carriage being able to convey itself down the street without an animal pulling it along. The horseless handsome? The horseless handsome was actually one early name for this. They had a lot of different names back in the... Really? Actually, yeah. So, but this is the thing I want you to really put yourself in this person's shoes in 1895. Imagine what it would have been like to see the very first automobile on the street, okay? You are used to seeing all of these conveyances being drawn by horses, or you're used to seeing like a railroad or a trolley. Right. Now you're seeing this little tiny thing, okay, because they looked very strange back in the day, basically just propelling itself. Might have looked even fantastic, even silly. So the automobile, the idea, the invention of the automobile comes from Europe. The inventors designed self-propulsion vehicles that looked a bit like large tricycles. This was the era of the velocipede. In fact, we were having a bit of a, a renewed interest in the velocipede, in the bicycle. So a lot of these devices looked like bicycles. In 1895, the first person to own an automobile in New York City was Diamond Jim Brady. Oh, wow. Right. A colorful, flamboyant dandy of a character, right? All over town. Yeah, New York's most famous on-the-town kind of show-off. So it's no surprise that he's the first to have an automobile. He's the first to own an automobile, and he's always credited with that. But let's be honest. He was the first passenger of New York's first automobile. The first driver of that automobile was an African-American chauffeur named William Johnson. So he was the the first driver of an automobile in New York City. And Diamond Jim was the first passenger. Yes. On one sunny afternoon in 1895, Brady sped from 57th Street to Madison Square in what a newspaper described, quote, as startling happenings in Madison Square. James B. Brady drives first horseless carriage seen in New York. Parents ties up traffic two hours. Um, <laughs> what he was driving 
was a woods electric car. And so this would be not the gasoline-driven car, but the electric car would be the first one seen in the streets of New York. And within a year, we would see the very first horseless hansoms. So the first taxis were actually more eco-friendly. Believe it or not, isn't it? you can almost see an alternate universe where this would have really taken off. Although I doubt the technology had really advanced to the point yeah. where they could get very far. No. Well, let me explain a little bit. In 1896 was the debut of an electrical vehicle called the Electrobat. Oh. <laughs> I'd ride in that. <laughs> it was developed in Philly. It was a very bulky vehicle, a, quote, battery streetcar, although it was very small. It kind of reminds me of a large red wagon, you know, the red wagon mm-hmm. you had as a kid. Imagine mm-hmm. a gigantic one of those. Mm. The radio flyer? Yeah, with, like, I- larger wheels. I mean, it almost looks like a children's ride, Okay, actually. So you'd hop in the Electrobat. <laughs> yes. And it was the company was called the Electric Vehicle Company. By 1899, they had 60 in the city. It would run on a battery for four hours before having to return and replace it. So eventually, they just proved like completely inadequate, right? Because there were other inventors of electric cars on the streets by this time. In 1897 came a larger operation of electric cars called Samuel's Electric Carriage and Wagon Company. It started with 12 on the street and by the year 1900 had 100 cars for hire. That's quite a fleet, and I imagine mm-hmm. that these hundred electric cars were also spooking the horses and causing other oh, kinds yeah, of chaos absolutely. in the street. There were charging stations throughout the city, usually in horse stables. Just to imagine those bosom buddies in the stable, the, <laughs> a charging car and a wow. spooked out horse. So were these popular? Was, did this transform the way that people got around town? No, because they just they they didn't improve the ride. Oh, because it was too slow. It was too slow. They were not comfortable. Sometimes you had to climb in the car in a very unusual way, and sometimes they were more expensive uh-huh. than a horse drawn. So it never really went to the next level. And then by 1907, most of Samuel's fleet was destroyed in a gigantic fire. So there was basically, like, that was almost the end of the electric car. There were still some on the road, of course, because people owned them. But this would slowly die out by the 1920s. It sort of ran out of juice. Oh, yes. The battery died on the electric cab industry. Here rose the opportunity for the petroleum-based car. And by the way, this whole time, so now we're at 1907, this whole time, handsome cabs are still being pulled around by horses. Oh, they yeah, of course. I mean, they have power. Powerful union support, and they have connections to government, okay? So, so, so the, the streets are industry, still yes. clogged with handsome cabs. Oh, yeah. In fact, they, I mean, they certainly didn't want any of this to happen, right? This change over to non-animal-powered vehicles. But one man decided he wanted to change that. It was after a very horrible experience he had in a handsome. So one day in 1907, a man named Harry N. Allen had a terrible ride in one of these hansoms. Mm -hmm. During this ride, he went about three-fourths of a mile during fairly high traffic and was charged the equivalent of $125 today. I believe a certain app-based taxi service would call that surge pricing today. (laughs) Whoa. How much was it in 1907? Five dollars. So five dollars even in 2015 sounds like a lot for three quarters of a mile. <laughs> well, he was obviously enraged by this. He was a rich man and decided to start his own taxi company. 
Exclamation point. Now, hold on. You, you, you just said taxi. Yes. Let me explain. So he imported 65 motor vehicles from France to start the New York Taxi Cab Company. Okay. It began on October 1st, 1907. I will let a quote from the New York Times make the introduction. Here. Okay. Quote, the new taxi meter motor cab, which promises New York low-priced cab service, made their initial trips for the general public yesterday. The first public trial of the new cabs was made Monday night by dinner guests of the Plaza Hotel, who were treated to free rides by Harry and Allen, president and general manager of the new taxi cab company. The new cabs are attractive-looking vehicles, 16-horsepower, four-cylinder Duroc cars of the Laudelais type, <laughs> made in France. Laudelais meaning a car with a folding hood mm. over the rear seat. They are of a rich red shad color, picked out with green and lined with gray. The driver is in a uniform not unlike that of a West Point cadet, a gray-blue trimmed with black braid. Unquote. So, Those were the days. Can you picture that? Yes. But I still don't understand why this can be called a taxi. Do you remember that I said the cabs were imported from France? Yes. Well, they had another French invention installed within them, and oh. that was the taxi meter, which was a little box that was contained inside the car, which could give a reasonably measured price per distance. The word taxi meter, by mm -hmm. the way. So, of course, meter means a distance of measure, a meter, oh, right? Like a f as opposed to a foot. I was thinking meter just means a device to read something. But it comes from this word meter, right? Okay, okay. so the distance. Taxi refers to the tax, like a fee, on the meter. Oh. <laughs> so, so taxi, when you're screaming taxi, you're actually screaming Ta fee. <laughs> fee. Well, you're screaming money, and that's why they're picking you up. Got it. Now, let me focus on another prominent identifying feature of the cab, and that would be its color. The yellow cab. Yes. Now, I've read some reports that said that Allen actually had debuted a yellow car in his fleet back here in 1907 to replace some of these red and green. But there was actually two different taxi cab fleets that would be called yellow cabs. The first one in 1912, which was formed by a Connecticut entrepreneur named Albert Rockwell. Well, legend has it that he named his initial fleet because yellow was the favorite color of his wife. Okay. <laughs> but that one didn't last very long, that fleet. The second more famous fleet, the Yellow Cab Company, which we're all a little bit more familiar with, is a Chicago-based company formed by a man whose name I think we are all familiar with in the world of rental cars, John D. Hertz. Oh, now, this was formed in 1914 on the streets of Chicago. It was a huge success and eventually moved out to the New York City market. Mr. Hertz called his the Yellow Cab Company because he claimed through some focus groups that yellow was the most identifiable, the kind of the loudest color on the streets. And uh -huh. So that's why he painted them yellow. So we have two different competing companies using yellow, right. which but, seems kind of confusing. Well, the first one died away. The one that we know today is that second one, the Yellow Cab Company. That's the ancestor of what we know today. And just to pull back here, we're talking about two different companies, but 
there were many different companies operating taxi fleets in New York City. Well, in 1922 came the chief competitor of the Yellow Cab Company, and that would be the Checker Cab Company, which was also, by the way, from Chicago, and the cars were made in Kalamazoo, Michigan. One reason to kind of explain why all this is, all this automobile innovation is, of course, Chicago is much closer to Detroit. Right. So, of course, they're going to receive a lot of this innovation far earlier than New York is. The Checker would debut with 600 cars on the New York streets in the 1920s. The Checker Cab was the first to hire African-American drivers and, in theory, had the directive to pick up passengers of all races because, I mean, we're dealing with this on the onset of this. Mm. They were only picking up people who looked wealthy and, of course, of certain races. But the Checker Cab Company were, in theory, meant and supposed to pick up everyone who hailed them. Uh-huh. Now, we have no city-run taxi service at this time. They're all private companies, all with little flags, you know, not with lights yet, to indicate that they're open for business. So you have all these different companies competing for patrons on the street, for riders, and the riders have to make sense of, or maybe they don't even care which company is which company. They just want to get in a cab, but the companies might be charging different fares. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's absolutely no regulation here, right? And so no regulation meant kind of a distrust of drivers. So by the 1920s, you just don't know what to believe when you get into a cab. And the competitiveness back then, because there were so many private fleets here, only caused reckless driving. And so oh, cab because drivers, they're competing to get people on the street hailing to to drive faster and to like pick people up and this is an era when you already had a huge number of traffic fatalities okay automobiles were newly introduced here on the street the streets were not prepared for them and pedestrians didn't know how to act Uh with them right so and you still had some animals on the streets and you had animals all over the place so we take a couple decades uh, of really messy transition period here for all the traffic on the street to become automobiles and for regulations to finally take hold and to protect pedestrians and other riders. By 1930, you had 30,000 taxi cabs on the street right in time for a huge expansion of roads and highways in New York City, which of course made the automobile the dominant form of transportation in New York City. But the city needed to step in, and there needed to be some big changes. And that, of course, would give us the modern taxicab system that we have today. We'll go through the drama of regulating this wild system of taxis after this break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And now, back to the show. 
So I left us at the year 1930, on the curb at 1930. Yes. So, and this is a decade where vast changes to the taxicab industry occur. Well, if we're talking about the 1930s, we're talking, obviously, about the Depression. An interesting thing happened uh, with the economic slowdown in New York in the 1930s. With so many white-collar professionals losing their jobs, many of these people actually turned to the taxi industry and to driving, to hacking as a fallback business, as a way to make money. However, this actually made conditions more difficult because suddenly there were more willing drivers, right, to drive more cabs. But there were actually fewer fares to be found because of the slowdown in the city. There were because people were staying home. They weren't eating out as much. They weren't visiting New York as much. They weren't seeing as many shows. So, well, they were relying on the subway a lot more and other public transportation. Right. If people were cutting back, they were going to take public transit. But ironically, that would happen at the same time as more people wanted to drive the cabs. And unfortunately, their fares would take a tumble with it, which in turn would make it more difficult for the people who were driving to eke out a living, causing them to drive longer hours. So it was just a perverse cycle, bad luck and bad timing for these drivers. And these drivers were, like you mentioned, working for many private fleets. These were large companies, that many of which were backed by large automobile companies. Mm-hmm. So Ford, Ford GM, General, yeah. General Motors would actually back these taxi fleets, and then they would negotiate top pickup spots. So the Pennsylvania Railroad outside Penn Station would actually have one company that they would work with for those pickup spots. Like exclusive taxi stands, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And if you were a driver for another company or an independent driver, you didn't dare pull up there and try to pick somebody up because you'd be, you know, given the bums rush out of town. There were also just independent cab drivers, so people who had bought the the taxi and and had the permit to drive up and down the streets, and they could set their own rates. And then there were the, quote, wildcat drivers. These were unlicensed drivers who just were picking people up in their cars. All this wildlife, nighthawks, owls, now wildcats. <laughs> wildcats who were just trolling the streets and cruising around looking for fares, and they were making deals. But because there was no regulation, they could also take advantage of their customers once they were in the back seat. Think of the guys who approach you at JFK uh, before uh, still, you get to a taxi know, right? They're, those are sort of wildcat <laughs> drivers. And what you don't have in this scenario is you don't have really strong unions. There were a couple of weak drivers' unions, but the entire system was such a mess with all these competing interests. And the big companies, which were made up of three main companies, Parmalee, Radio Garages, and Terminal, were really represented sort of like the big money, and they were backed by these big companies. So how did all of this get resolved? I mean, obviously, the mayor has to step in at some point. I mean, this is just an untenable situation happening in the city streets. Well, Mayor Jimmy Walker tried to step into it, and he stepped into something else because (laughs) he tried to create a sort of city taxi monopoly, right, a sort of service. And that seemed like a workable solution until it was revealed that he was actually accepting bribes from the city's biggest taxi fleet, Parmalee. (laughs) City Hall tried to also get involved by including a nickel tax on every fare. So at the end of your fare, you know, when the taxi meter would tell you it's $1.20, they would add another nickel on to that 
that went to something, right? It was sort of a city tax. <laughs> Convenience charge. And the passengers would sometimes take it out on the drivers. So the drivers were noticing that with that nickel tax, they were mm. actually receiving smaller tips. And, and that they, happens today still. Right. Mm. People are upset about a nightly surcharge or mm-hmm. whatever. And they take it out on the driver because they round their tip down. Yeah. So people were rounding their tips down and the, the drivers were crying foul. So you've got all these drivers who are already getting kind of ripped off by their fleets and by their big companies. Mm-hmm. And they're also getting taxed by the city. They're getting tipped less by people. And there are more and more of them. And it's the depression. Something's got to give. They can't take it anymore. And LaGuardia, Mayor LaGuardia campaigned in 1933 for a repeal of the nickel tax, which he did push through in 1934. Mm-hmm. So this nickel tax is dropped. Went away. But the city had collected hundreds of thousands of dollars in nickels. And <laughs> But there arose the question of what to do with all of those nickels collected. So the taxi drivers, this is going someplace. Okay. The taxi drivers decided to strike over this nickel tax because they wanted it to be fairly distributed. To them, to them as of well. course. Not, they lost the money, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Not just to be distributed back to the big fleets and the big fat cats at the top. Mm-hmm. Well, LaGuardia hemmed and hawed and nothing really happened. So on February 5th of 1934, thousands of taxicab drivers took to the streets to protest their working conditions and demand for the nickel tax to be distributed to them. They were determined for the strike to stop the taxi service and to raise awareness of their horrible uh, driving and working conditions. But of course, not everybody got the memo because the, the, (laughs) the unions were not very strong and some taxis were still in operation. So these protesting drivers searched out and attacked the taxis that were still operating and not participating in the strike. And things got violent. They pulled off taxi doors. They shattered windshields with rocks. It got serious. They, they pulled female passengers out of the back seats. And in the end, the drivers would win a 50% cut of those nickel taxes that had been... So it would succeed. So that one succeeded. However, they had this bigger issue looming, much bigger than this nickel tax, Mm -hmm. was the fact that they were not organized, that these drivers were really in a system where they were competing with each other. And nobody was really representing their collective interests. There needed to be some kind of city-based regulation to raise the fares because the competition was just driving them lower. Mm -hmm. So the next month, in March of 1934, there was another strike. This one targeted the theater district, where 5,000 drivers roamed the theater district, attacking cabs that were out working the streets. Wow, how chaotic. And look at this. This is a reprint of the newspaper The Hot Seat, Uh a taxi newspaper, which offered this eyewitness account of the strike. Mm -hmm. Quote, The drivers left a wake of wreckage which plunged the iron deep in the Parmalee radio and terminal operators. Cabs lay on their side, their wheels grotesquely whirling. Here and there they burst into flames. Scabs fled down the streets, pursued by strikers, while mounted police picked their way through the streets at the fore and rear of the demonstrations. This sounds like a wartime description. Yeah. Wow. This strike, however, was not a success. The taxi fleets fought back. They published full-page ads in the newspapers. They accused the strikers of being communists. They even brought in gangsters to kind of break up the strikes Mm -hmm. and cause dissent within the ranks. Yeah, many of them were associated with organized crime. And after about two weeks, many of these strikers just returned to their cabs without any kind of new contract. 
However, the city was aware of the fact that something had to be done. So in 1937, LaGuardia introduced a piece of legislation that is still with us today, a very important piece of legislation called the Hass Act, that's H-A-A-S. Excuse me? The, the Hass Act? I'm sorry, it, did, it didn't come out right. The Hass Haas. Haas Act. Haas okay. Act. <laughs> the Haas Act introduced the medallion system. Which is still with us today. Yes. yes. This limited the number of taxi licenses to the number of taxis that were on the street at that moment, which was at that moment 16,900. This just froze that number in place. Over time, the city would actually lower this number. Oh, so interesting. That today there are just over about thirteen thousand medallions in circulation. So it's a cap, technically, this to is, the, of the official cabs in New York. Right. The, these medallions are licenses themselves. They are seals. They are fixed to the hood of the car, and they they designate the cab as an officially sanctioned and licensed cab that is free to pick up fares. But there are a set number of these. So at the time where you decide to retire your cab, or the cab, if it's owned by a fleet, um, is going to retire, that same medallion has to be placed on another car. Mm-hmm. So, but, but they're not actual medallions. <laughs> I, I always imagine they were like gigantic coins or something, but they well, were they are, They're seals. They're seals. You can see on. them. Okay, you know, yeah. they're on the front of a Sure, they're yeah. They're on the, the, the hood of the car. I don't know. I'm just picturing like a gigantic gold coin, but that's not but what they are. Pr- they're pretty. Look at them. <laughs> um, and they have the number of the medallion right there. They also have that same number today on the lights above. So, you know, the light on top oh, of the cab that's the medallion that tells number. you whether or not it's on or off. In between is a number. That's the medallion number. Now, because there's such a fixed number of them, of course, as time goes on, they must raise in value almost like a collectible, right? Right. Exactly. And when they were introduced in 1937, the medallions could be purchased by those taxis that were already in existence for $10. It then dawned on the drivers over the next decade that, hey, wait a second, because there can be no future medallions added to the system, these things are pretty valuable. Mm -hmm. In 13 years, by 1950, those same medallions that had cost $10 were now trading for about (laughs) $5,000. Just as as an aside, what's your opinion on the medallion system? We'll talk about this probably a little bit later under Uber, but is it a good system? Well, there there are definite pros. I mean, because of this system, uh, the medallion holders are expected to maintain their cars in a certain condition. Don't forget that before any kind of regulation, it was anything goes out there, right? Nobody was going to come along and test the car and make sure that it was up to certain safety standards. Now you know that it's, generally speaking, a safe car that has passed different safety inspections. Also, the drivers are more accountable. You can easily see and spot their medallion number, and inside the cab, you can also see the driver's license number, which is not the same as the medallion number. And drivers and fleet owners know that if they do something wrong, they can lose those medallions as well. Those are a right and those are licensed to them. So there's accountability. But of course, on the downside, these have become so valuable that they've actually sort of eclipsed the original intention of the system and become this entire trading phenomenon on their own. If, <laughs> if by 1950 they were already trading for $5,000 per medallion, you can only imagine how valuable they are today. And in fact, just a couple of years ago, a taxi medallion traded for a million dollars. 
Tom, I have, in fact, in 2013, a mini fleet medallion priced at $1.1 million for a medallion. Although, what, what year is that? That's 2013. And we have some... We have an update to that, which I'll get to later. But in any case, all of these numbers are kind of crazy, especially if you consider that today most drivers take in about $100,000 a year in revenues mm-hmm. before expenses, and they probably take home about $50,000. So you can see that this medallion system is totally out of whack, and there are different <laughs> ways that people today pay for those medallions, and we can get into that later, um, because it isn't just a straight-up you know, purchase. Right. However, the city has tried to maintain a certain balance among the owner-operated, so individually owned and operated taxicabs, and the corporate-owned or private fleet taxis, because they want to keep some smaller privately-owned taxis in the whole system. So that's a little ahead of the story. Sorry. I got a little worked up. I lost my voice. Because 1937 is when the medallions were introduced, and then they became vastly expensive by the 1950s into the 1960s. Right. Now, during the 40s with World War II, it's sort of a golden era of uh, taxis in New York because there was a lot of rationing during the war, so people could not drive their own private cars as easily or buy them, so taxis became really in demand. And it was in the 1940s uh, with so many men away that women first sat behind the driver's seat and sat behind the wheel in taxis. And so that's kind of what on the town refers to, having a, a woman taxi driver. In 1950s in New York, of course, we have a great flight to the suburbs, and many of these middle-class customers that had been the bread and butter of the taxi industry were leaving town where they had their own cars. In the 1960s, the taxi system, like the entire city, was affected by the simmering racial tensions um, and the eruption of protest and violence throughout the city. And this insecurity uh, led to a greater reluctance for taxis to even service the poorer and African-American neighborhoods in the city, which gave, in turn, a rise to the development of the livery cab industry. So these were private car systems that could be based out of specific neighborhoods, and many of these would be underserved neighborhoods by the taxicabs. These did not need a medallion, although they needed to be licensed uh, Mm -hmm. by the city. And very importantly, these livery cabs were not allowed to cruise the streets and pick up passengers. You couldn't hail a livery cab. These are, by the way, often called gypsy cabs. They were also called gypsy cabs. So during the 60s, I mean, it was sometimes very difficult to get uptown, uh, depending on what neighborhood you lived in. And so there were a variety of different options on the street. How did you, how were you even able to know, you know, what was official and what was, you know, acceptable and, you know, which ones not to take? Well, in 1967, New York required that all of the medallion taxis uh, be painted a bright yellow to make them instantly recognizable. So that's kind of the official birthday of the yellow cab as an official garment of the cab, right? Exactly. A bit more ominously, it was the same year, 1967, when they installed the first bulletproof glass between the driver and the back seat. And things did not exactly get easier into the 70s. No. Uh, In fact, the number of attempted robberies in cabs went from 438 in 1963 to 3,200 in 1979. That is an insane explosion of crime. 
1971, the Taxi and Limousine Commission was formed, which was an actual separate umbrella uh, for the city for taxis, liveries, black cars, and small public transit, essentially. It used to be under the police force. Now it was its own separate thing. It didn't exactly have a revolutionary impact at first, starting in the 70s, of course. You know, you still have this racial profiling that was happening uh, with drivers, you know, identifying passengers and not picking them up. And this would still vex the taxicab industry for decades afterwards, and especially in the 1990s. It frankly was just not even profitable in the 70s to operate a cab. So the cabs themselves would become cheaper model cars. You then had a kind of media hysteria, which comes up now and then and still kind of happens, involving fleecing passengers trying to get to airports. Oh, yeah. In 1979, over 400 drivers at JFK and LaGuardia airports had their licenses suspended for being caught bilking passengers for extra money, for like charging exorbitant rates to get to and from the airport. And even with the taxi meter, I think a common tactic was just taking them, shall we say, the long way around. <laughs> the, the scenic route, if you will. Now, interestingly, the public perception of cab drivers is heightened at this time because of two big pop cultural phenomenons. The first being Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver in 1976, featuring the vigilante cabbie Travis Bickle. Which portrays the taxi driver as a romantic, troubled... You know, he has some good qualities that are sort of then consumed by some bad ones, <laughs> let's just say. But on a sort of lighter, gentler touch, you had the critically acclaimed sitcom of the late 70s and early 80s, Taxi, starring Danny DeVito and Judd Hirsch, which centered around a West Village cab company. Now, in the 1980s, Things are a little complicated organizationally, which I won't get too deeply into because it is quite complicated. But to briefly describe major changes, cab fleet owners could now lease to individual drivers. Mm -hmm. It started here in the 1980s. Because the lease of a medallion could be quite high and the drivers would have to pay for their own gas, cabbies actually ended up working more hours. So as a result, through the 70s and 80s, the Old school drivers, these old Italian Jewish cabbies of the old days, Mm -hmm. um, they all eventually got out of this line of work. And who moved in, in fact, were the new arriving immigrants of the 1960s and the 1970s. And so. And most of these people are coming from the Caribbean, from Africa. Well, I'll tell you exactly, because we're going to jump to some statistics, a little game for you, Tom. Oh, boy. Put me on the spot. Well, before we get to the um, ethnic makeup of the drivers, I did want to point out that New York taxi cab business is still very much a Manhattan industry. So these statistics are from a 2014 city government source here. So over 90% of standard taxi pickups today are still in Manhattan or Manhattan to go to another borough. Right, mm-hmm. 90%, okay? Brooklyn is in second place at only 3.1%. Doesn't that just seem hard to believe? Although the city has known about this issue of the outer boroughs and has tried recently to do something about it. As, in fact, as recently as 2013, they debuted the concept of the borough cab, or what I like to call the lime green cab. Apple green, <laughs> Apple green Apple cab. Green. So what they do... They specifically cater to the outer boroughs, or rather the four boroughs of Queens, Bronx, 
Brooklyn and Staten Island, and Upper Manhattan. So these green cabs, uh, as opposed to yellow, can only pick people up in these outer boroughs and north of 96 in Manhattan. Right. It's, it's, it's north of East 96th Street and West 110th Street specifically. But yeah, they can only pick you up at that area, but then they can pick up passengers in those areas and take them into lower Manhattan, but they just can't pick anyone up in lower Manhattan. It's a it's a little confusing, but you may see those green cabs darting around. Well, that's where they're from and that's their purpose. Now, the driver of the New York City taxi cab in 2014 comes from a variety of different countries. They come from all over the world, Ecuador, Egypt, China, Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the top five countries that are represented, the, the places where the taxi cab drivers are born, in fifth place is the United States. Okay. Yeah, so there's still, still some representation there. In fourth place is Haiti. In third place, India. Second place, Pakistan. And in first place, 23.1% of all New York City cab drivers were born in Bangladesh. Wow. Well, a pretty diverse lot that reflects immigration to the city. Now, a statistic that's not diverse, um, the fleet comprises 99% male drivers. There are only, as of 2014, 536 female drivers. Out of how many drivers? More than 50,000. Now, what borough do you think most of these drivers live in? This is an interesting Hmm. question. I'm going to go with Queens. Correct. 88% of all cab drivers live there, which is funny because it's, you know, then they spend most of their time in Manhattan from working. The hardest day to find a taxi is... Friday. No, it's Sundays, followed by Monday. So don't be late for work. Yeah. Um, Friday has low in the morning, but extremely high in the evening. So that evens it out a little bit more. So maybe it is pretty bad on Friday mornings. Or Friday night. Well, speaking of nights, in cities that do sleep, (laughs) late night cabs, of course, wouldn't get much work. But in the city that never sleeps, at four in the morning... On the weekends. When the, the bars close. Yes, the car, the, all New York City cabs are 50% occupied. Which is a pretty amazing statistic when you consider how late it is and the fact that today there are other options for people to get into mm-hmm. some kind of private automobile to get back home. And so that brings us to the latest situation, controversy, competition uh, that would be reality reality which is the uber car company and other smaller companies that are app related ride shares that are basically you just you can type them into your phone they'll come directly to where you're at there's incredible ease and convenience and the rides are very tightly controlled experiences essentially i'm looking at you with complete skepticism well they i mean no i mean they are you get from one place to the other and it's you get to play your own music you don't even have to pay you don't even technically have to tip i mean right it can be all charged to your account right it's all this you don't even see it happening it's just it's almost like a luxury experience right Right. and i love that they're called ride share you used ride share app which they are you know commonly referred to as rideshare as part of the sharing economy, but I can't for the life of me understand what's being shared here, except for my wallet. 
I mean, well, this isn't like somebody is not charging to take me someplace. No. Well, I mean, the more I read about this issue, and I've just done a lot of hours of research in the past and reading on this in the past week, I'm more confused about where I possibly stand on this. So on one hand, Uber is great for, for the outer boroughs. It really is because you don't have the same problems of getting places at certain hours of the night that uh, you might have 30 years ago, depending on who you were, especially. For customers, you're saying who are in the outer boroughs or to yes. get to the no, outer boroughs? In the outer boroughs, okay. right? Now, there is, and this is the case, same case with the regular cab driver, the sort of the safety of the experience for the passenger. Because anybody can be a driver and they don't and because these are, are not drivers who are regulated by the city right so but the major problem here the crisis really for the new york taxi cab is the fact that there are now more ubers on the street than there are taxis in mm. fact there's quite a bit more if you factor in all of the other kinds of livery cabs and all of the competitors of uber that are now coming into the city it's creating a big problem especially for those who work and who are making their living in the new york taxi cab because those medallion prices which we said were skyrocketing um the prices are now plummeting and that's affecting their livelihood because people have saved up their and entire lives in order to purchase or to lease one of these medallions. And now they're seeing that savings and that investment disappearing before their eyes as people choose Lyft or Uber um, overtaking a taxi. But I just want to bring up the point of regulation because this seems like 1937 all over again before LaGuardia introduced the medallion system and increased regulation. Remember, we had too many cars, too many drivers who were causing uh, the the taxi fares to dramatically decrease and making it harder and harder for drivers to make a living. Isn't that sort of what we're seeing here? It's like we have a group of drivers working for this other company, or I guess they're independent contractors in the case Uh of these apps. They're being matched with their fare through this app. And there really isn't any regulation of this industry at all. No. It's, it, well, it's a completely privately run company. In fact, Mayor de Blasio tried and failed very recently to put a cap on the number of Uber cars. And, of course, they derisively uh, shot back with a new button on the app that was like de Blasio pricing of like, this is what will happen if de Blasio gets his way. Um, and it essentially failed. Here's the thing is that Uber obviously provided an improved service because they became instantly successful in New York and they do in other cities. Okay. That is, which is a benefit to the customer. Right. It's a great benefit to the customer. And if the New York taxi cab wants to be able to compete, it needs to take some of what was the success and then add it to their own model. Okay. The problem is, is like, do we want Uber to take over the whole industry? I, I can't say that people want that necessarily. Well, I think the question is whether or not regulations exist for a reason, whether mm-hmm. or not we think that private enterprise can actually do a better job than government at creating regulations and providing for the safety of passengers. I am not convinced. Now, I don't want to say that the New York taxi cab has not improved and that's being left behind with the dinosaurs. In fact, we've got hybrids. We have more accessible cars than ever, more hyper-luxurious cabs with all this 
fancy screens inside of it. With It's a more comfortable writing experience. We will soon have the Taxi of Tomorrow, Tom, in 2017. <laughs> Sounds like a ride at Disney World. <laughs> well, it's going to be an electric cab. So it's going to be taking us back to the tradition of the very first horseless cab ride from the late 19th century, although clearly more comfortable. For many photographs of these checkered cabs, yellow cabs, red cabs. All sorts of cabs. All kinds of cabs. And handsomes. And handsome handsomes. Head to our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have some great photos. And also, we need to tell you about a special live event that we will be giving uh, on September 13th, Sunday night at 54 Below. This is our last podcast before that show, so now is your time to go and get your tickets if you haven't. That is a special with the podcast The Ensemblist, and... It's going to be a night of theater, and although we're going to be at 54 Below, it's going to be a show about the history of one of Broadway's most famous theaters called the St. James. Together, we'll be telling a story of the St. James Theater and some of the theater milestones that took place on that very stage, along with some great actors, um, musicians, who will be singing some of the great hits of the shows that debuted on that stage. There's even going to be a couple performers who debuted those songs on the stage of the St. James and are going to join us uh, for this special evening on Sunday. So please uh, go to the website of 54below.com or, of course, the BoweryBoysHistory.com for more information to get your tickets. We will be releasing outtakes from this show because... As always, we've recorded way too long. This is a long Um, cab ride. This is a very long lift we've done. (laughs) Um, We will be uh, releasing those for our patrons uh, in the coming days. Thank you again to the hundreds of people who have stepped up and become patrons of the Bowery Boys, supporting us as we make an effort to double the production of the show. If you would like to join them and find out about the special little extras, head to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys, and join us there. So thanks for joining us on this survey of the history of the New York City taxi cab. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Taxi! When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.